From WXXI News, this is Connections. I'm Evan Dawson. Our connection this hour is made in newsrooms across this country. As we've reported on this program, many of those newsrooms are shrinking or shuttering. That's not new. Something else that is not new is that many of those newsrooms are still very white and very male. And while all of this shrinking and constriction happens, concerns related to the diversity of news staffs have become perhaps out of sight or even more critical. According to data from Digiday and reported by Forbes, the top media companies in the United States, including Condé Nast, Hearts, The New York Times, and more, are still hiring mostly white people. Forbes writes, quote, For the majority of media companies, even though there is diverse representation among new hires, the number of candidates hired from underrepresented racial groups has declined compared to previous years, end quote. When it comes to gender, recent data shows most newsrooms around the world remain Pretty non-diverse. That's certainly true in this country. Majority white and male, despite a lot of conversation publicly about this issue. So how does the marginalization of women and LGBTQ plus individuals, specifically women and LGBTQ plus people of color, affect how stories are covered or not covered? or stories that are reported or not reported. A nonprofit digital news organization is seeking to bridge those gaps. Its work has been celebrated, but it's also come with challenges. It's the focus of a documentary called Breaking the News that will be screened at the Little Theater next week. And this hour, we're previewing that event and talking about the state of diversity, or lack thereof, in a lot of different newsrooms here. And our guests include my colleague Jasmine Singer, who often has the host microphone, she has to be in a guest chair today. <laughs> I like it, Evan. Jasmine Hi. is the host of WXXI's Weekend Edition, also the host of Environmental Connections, which you will hear on the last Friday of every month on this program in this slot, and the guest host for Morning Edition, All Things Considered, this program and more. Nice to have you back here. Thanks, Evan. Happy to be here to discuss this. Thanks for covering it. Yeah, and Vanessa Cheeks with us as well, Vice President of Social Media and Marketing for the Rochester Association of Black Journalists. You'll hear RABJ, that's what we're talking about. Also, Communications Manager for Rochester's Police Accountability Board and former TV News producer, Speaking probably for yourself today. I mean, yes. I'm trying to make sure that that is clear. Yes. Uh, and, and a journalist who has done a lot of really good work in this community, who we've spoken to many times on this program. Um, and later this hour, we're going to welcome Emily Ramshaw to talk about the organization that I mentioned at the outset here. But Jasmine, do you want to just mention a little bit about what is coming up with Breaking the News on Monday, this coming Monday? Absolutely. This coming Monday, we are hosting a screening of Breaking the News at the Little Theater at 6.30, and following that film, we will be doing a talk back with a panel of guests, including Vanessa, which I'm very excited about. We want to have a lot of engagement from the audience, so for those of you listening right now, I certainly hope you'll call in today, but I also hope you can make it there on Monday, because it's such an important film, and it needs to be discussed in Rochester for sure. Well, this is, I mean, really, like I said at the outset here, this is not new anymore. I mean, doesn't mean it's not important. Of course it is. But part of what I think is perhaps surprising is there has been in the last decade, and that's just a judgment that I'm giving based on hosting this show for a decade. I mean, in the first month of hosting Connections, 2014, we were talking about this issue. And that doesn't mean that people don't care, but there's a lot of different forces that kind of conspire against change. Can I ask both of you? I'll start with you, Jasmine, what you think maybe those forces are that conspire against change? Well, I think certainly we've had a a 
an uprising in this country, in a racial uprising, a racial reckoning in the last few years that has contributed greatly to the need for having a more inclusive newsroom. But beyond that, I think the fact that younger people, I'm not counting myself in that, but younger people who are on social media are starting to break away from the mainstream media industrial complex and reflecting what's going on in their own communities as they see it, not as it's being reported. And so therefore, people in the newsroom are being kind of forced in many cases to either like, you know, go big or go home. And we have to change the way things are, are going on. We have to change the representation that we have in the newsroom because, in my opinion, that directly impacts the way stories are reported. Vanessa, how do you see it? I think finances are a big barrier. Uh, taking that risk to uh, target an audience that newsrooms have traditionally not targeted is especially now in the day of you know clicks for money, selling ad space, everything like that. Newsrooms are focused on typically white suburban folks, even our newsrooms here in the city. That's their target is people out in Webster, people in Greece, people in Pittsburgh. They're not necessarily targeting the folks that are living in the communities where these news stations are operating most of the time. And so it's a risk to tell stories that might not appeal to the audience that you are have been catering to for, for decades. And so that can lead to telling telling the story excuse me telling the stories incorrectly not telling them at all focusing on things that um, are a little more sensationalized and not necessarily the full picture or not uh, as Jasmine said telling them as they are happening to the people in the community but as they are perceived by the people outside of it and I think that's a big challenge as well I, it, Vanessa brings up a couple of points I want to work through and I also want to be clear at the outset here you know our guests will talk about their experience. You know, I'll, I'll describe a little bit about where my career has taken me. And I don't want to take the gaze away from us here at WXXI. I mean, it's an important part of the conversation to say, if you're the only growing newsroom in town, if you're the only stable newsroom in town, um, how do you view this issue? I can say that there is a lot of intentionality and I think a lot of concern and care about it. Um, you know, probably not enough change anywhere. Evan, we if, definitely, if gonna... we don't want you to take the gaze away. No, just nice. saying. No, <laughs> G-A-Z-E. I get that, yeah. I, I was like, ooh. Yeah, we need a moment for puns. <laughs> I, I do like puns. I didn't know if I... G-A-Z-E, Jasmine. Got so, <laughs> But the, the focus has to be everywhere. It has to be on us. And um, I can tell you that this is something that is discussed a lot. Inertia is powerful. Then there's other forces that are, uh, I think, affecting a lot of newsrooms that are shrinking and being constricted, especially in print, and that is if you can go back 10 years, 20 years, and say, hey, we had all the right conversations, we had all the right intentionality, and then we got cut, and we got cut, and we got cut, and we weren't hiring, and we were shrinking, and you know, all of a sudden the focus was on just sort of surviving as a newsroom and all this stuff. So I, I have sympathy for that on one hand, because when you're just trying to survive as a newsroom, it's hard to kind of look around and say, like, what are all the important things we can do here, as opposed to... Who, do, who is left and what can we do? At the same time, there still has to be accountability to your communities. And when Vanessa talks about newsrooms that, that don't really cover where they live, I think this is a, a newsroom that does a pretty good job of that. I mean, but I will say I spent more than 10 years in local TV news at a station located in the suburbs, 
still located in the suburbs. Most of the uh, most of the people who are staying in the community who work there live in the suburbs. The young journalists, increasingly young and young and young and poorly paid, are here. They find a cheap apartment. They're here for a few years and they're gone. So you're right. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of coverage of the suburbs a lot by a lot of people living in the suburbs. Yeah. And it shows. Well, you're saying it shows. So <laughs> yeah. tell me what when you elaborate on that last line. It shows. So I think it shows specifically, I guess, when you talk about crime reporting, especially. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, you could look at crime reporting and you can talk to people. I, I look at any uh, news organizations, news stations comment section on their Facebook whenever they post about a shooting or um, some type of crime happening and how news covers crime is so disproportionate to the way that it happens to the frequency that it happens and um it paints this ugly picture of like this urban wasteland even in rochester where like the downtown is what like 10 15 minutes but people think it's this far off wild wild west type of place specifically because not only because but of how things are reported in the news and you're not telling those stories of like the people who are impacted by that crime or the stories about the people who are thriving in spite of crime or diving into the details and the statistics to show, like, yes, crime is happening, but it's decreasing. Um, You know, it's happening. This specific type of crime is happening. However, it is the lowest it has been in a decade. It's just, you know, shooting crime, shooting crime, break-in, car robbery. And so it tells people in the suburbs that that's all that happens in the city. And that's not all that happens in the city. And it's not all that the people who live in the city have to deal with either. Um, They're dealing with, you know, there's also poverty. There's also um, community events. There's also churches. There's family groups. There's people who go around and they know every single neighbor on their street and they make sure that they're, you know, well-fed. They're taking care of their elderly. They're taking care of the kids. And so there's so much rich, a rich tapestry of community in the city. But the way that it's painted, you would never know that. Yeah. You know, I I wish I would have thought of this when somebody asked me recently, like, hey, your first 10 years, like, what are the standout moments? The single most shocking moment to me in my first 10 years of hosting the show, was I think it was 2017, mm-hmm. was when a former New York State member of the Assembly who w- had retired and was coming back out of retirement after Bill Noje's death, Joe Arrigo, he grew up in the city, and I mean, and Carter... And now lived in suburban, edging toward rural Monroe County. And he said he would not go back to his old neighborhood even in an armored car. And he said that he thought Barack Obama was convincing black people to hate white people. Mm -hmm. And he said that there were no places he could go that would feel safe um, in the city, even though we were sitting here in the city. Mm -hmm. So I I offered to take him. I'm like, well, I don't think you need an armored car. And I'll take you any day well, you go want. Go right like, now. Like, yeah, let's go. Like, I mean, let. I'm not, and I didn't mean to be glib because I recognize there are zip codes. The story of, of violence mm-hmm. and poverty is often not just city to town to town to town. It's often zip code to zip code that get left behind mm-hmm. and stereotyped and all of those things. But, so I don't want to be glib. I know there's more violence, but it's also not a story of, as Vanessa says, just random 
you know, urban danger all the time. Mm-hmm. And I said, I'll, t- I'll we'll go anywhere you want. And he never took me up on it. And but that was a, a shock to me, even though it shouldn't have been a shock. But is that kind of where what you're talking about here? Oh, yeah. Like, I I mean, even in my daily life, you talk to people in the suburbs and they're like, oh, I would never go into the city. And you're like, why? Well, what I see on the news. And it's like, what are you, yeah, right. <laughs> what are you talking about? Like, what do you think is going on? Yeah. And so as somebody who lives in the city, um, and I have lived in the suburbs, hated it, but, uh, you know, I was there. And <laughs> <laughs> there's no sidewalks. It's a whole conversation for a different day. Walkability is a whole thing. But um, living in the city, it's it's just it's so great it's so great and so it makes me sad to think that like people have this this negative perception but i think as somebody who works in news it's so clear to see how that happens and it's uh a little um it's unfortunate that newsrooms don't do enough to change that i guess you could say and part of that is the shrinking they don't have the bodies to do it and some of us inexperienced i think Mm -hmm. most people i want to think are not ill-intended by the way i was probably that person for Mm -hmm. a while myself right so what i what i would say to especially to younger journalists and and, but all journalists is if you are only reporting on a police blotter with no context Mm -hmm. and you never seek to contextualize that you're just running in your a block a stabbing a shooting or whatever Mm -hmm. then you are only reporting on incidents not issues and you are making your community less informed yes yeah that's how i feel about that so but I was part of that problem for a long, probably for a long time. Um, so we're talking about what happens when newsrooms do change. And Vanessa, I think, gave a really impassioned uh, set of comments about what happens when they're mostly white and suburban. What about the question of, of why newsrooms continue to be mostly male? Uh, not a whole lot of representation outside of sort of straight white male groups. Yeah. Uh, Jasmine. Well, as the uh, professional lesbian among the panel today, I I say that jokingly, but honestly, I am pigeonholed into that very frequently. And I think that might be part of the issue is that if I'm pitching a story on LGBTQ issues, then it might be seen as too niche. I'm not talking about specifically at WXXI. I've gotten to cover a lot of LGBTQ issues, but just in general, and I'm fairly new to WXXI, as you know, but in general, it's not only seen as like my beat just because I fit into that community, but it's also seen as uh, almost like historically, almost like a favor for me to be able to cover it again, not not specifically at WXXI. I think WXXI does an incredible job of covering a lot of the LGBTQ movement here in Rochester and beyond. But it the reason why I think that a lot of people don't go into this field is partly because they're not seeing themselves represented on TV or on the radio, or maybe maybe they don't necessarily know because hosts have to maintain some degree of being somewhat biased, uh, you know, unbiased party. So that to me is a big issue. And I hope that as we continue to talk about this today and in the future, we are able to expand our understanding of what it means to bring on a diverse staff so that it's not the default of cisgender white male. It is, as it was talked about in the film, Breaking the News, an issue that is affecting the entire LGBTQ movement. And I will say that as a white lesbian, I understand the duality of my great privileges as a white person while also maybe like passing as straight as they would say 
I understand that's also a privilege, but still holding the fact that I'm very frequently in a room that is heteronormative. And by a room, I mean a newsroom that is heteronormative. And that, too, is reflected in the in the storytelling. Vanessa, d- does that resonate with you? Yes. Um, and I would say, too, like, I think in the in the documentary, there was a part where Kate, it was addressed that um, they not be the sole person responsible for telling those stories, even though they are like the sole person who identified as as queer in that group and there were so many times where like as one of the only black people in a newsroom you're like so what are we going to do for black history month and then they all just kind of look and you're like why me right (laughs) you figure it out you figure it out like you're a reporter go like find the story don't ask me for it but it happens so often where you have to kind of fill that role and it's yeah exhausting at times well i mean that idea when you're the lone person mm-hmm. for me harkens back to conversations with um, a couple of years ago talked to uh, people who are doing a lot of work to bring more kids of color into sciences and really um, all the way through higher ed and talked to someone who was working on a PhD and said you know walked into a room of people and every eye is on you and it's mm-hmm. like if I fail it, the failure is not just <sighs> mine it's like all the people are who might be looking at me going like, oh, I've like never seen a black PhD candidate in this field. Mm-hmm. And if I fail, that means it's not just about me, mm-hmm. which is entirely unfair and not anything that I've ever experienced in my whole life and probably never will. Um, but have you ever felt that way, Vanessa? Like, you know, this is not even just about me and that's not fair to me. Um, I think in the way I, I have been fortunate to not be a reporter in uh, an all-white newsroom, but a producer in an all-white newsroom. And what I've seen is this this idea that you have to convince people to take a risk on a, on a story that they wouldn't normally tell. And that stress is, if you don't tell it right, if you don't, if it doesn't do well on social media, if it doesn't do well on air, um, if the sources don't come through or whatever, if this story fails, then that means I'm going to have to work 10 times harder to get them to take a risk on another story. Part of that is, as you said, resources, when you only have a limited amount of resources and you have to choose between a story you know is going to play up with the folks, you know, um, that you usually aim to or not, you know, but I've seen it happen where it's like you have to beg or just like plead your case, like you're in front of the court of like why it matters. But then when it does do well, it's like, yes, I told you. Right. <laughs> you're like, these things work. And they're, it's just like, wow, really? Oh my gosh, I had no idea. And it's like, yeah, if you just, yeah. <laughs> Evan, can I draw a parallel for you that I think is kind of amusing and it's something I also go through? So I'm saying this with lightness, but I'm vegan. I've been vegan for 20 years. And as you know, animal rights, it, is very important to me. And it's funny because any place where I've ever worked, whenever I have pitched a story that is a story that can stand on its own, like it's a really good story that has to do with veganism or animal rights, I frequently have to jump through a lot more hoops in order Mm -hmm. to make the point that this is worth covering. And similarly, if I walk into certain rooms, People are like, oh, there's the vegan, you know? And the reason I'm bringing that up is because to me, there is a direct parallel here. It's like your identity is what makes you 
a media person to your colleagues frequently as a as opposed to perhaps like cis white men who are working in the newsroom to nobody is going to be looking at them thinking that they have an identity completely enmeshed with the stories that they're co- covering mm-hmm. so they're almost the baseline like they're the they're the default and everything else that comes from there is built upon does that am i making sense uh, absolutely yes and you just made sense in a way that sort of shook something loose in me because I can understand at times if a news director, if, if an editor, if someone who is a superior in an organization is, is just cautiously, sometimes overcautiously making sure that if you've got staff who've also engaged in activism before, are we doing an active activism, we do an active journalism. Sometimes is there overlap? Is that overlap appropriate? How do you draw those lines? And I think those conversations are valid. Totally mm-hmm. valid. And and necessary. I have given you, I have said, Evan, you should cover this story on connections because I can't. And I completely agree with right. you. Right. And, and, and my sense is always like, I don't know that there's anything that you can't, but I understand why there might be moments where you might say, okay, am I the right person? Am I too close to it? However, what really shook loose is when you said, no one's ever asked me if I sort of feel passionately about a cause. Because mm-hmm. I'm the default. Right. You know, like, baseline is, is the white guy. It's like, well, you're not advocating. You're a journalist. Yeah. And um, No one's saying, why this? <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. right. And, um, and I like to think that I... Um, you know, am the arbiter of all truth of the universe. <laughs> Definitely. Don't we all, yeah. <laughs> you know, sometime like in my in my 38th year, I felt like I'd achieved that. And I'm on cruising altitude now. Um, no, I mean, like it's it's a, just a, that dichotomy is very interesting to mm-hmm. me. And I appreciate the point. I should think about that more often. And I think you can walk and chew gum at the same time. I think you can say it is absolutely appropriate to say, Hey, let's make sure we're doing journalism, not activism, or let's talk about that. Let's talk about what that looks like. And are you comfortable given some of the work you've done or how you've expressed yourself in the past? Does this work versus why am I never asking this person this question? Mm -hmm. Why am I only, you know, like that's, well, you can, you can do both. Yeah. You can do exactly. Be and, very mindful of that. And it's partly, too, about making sure that the people who you are featuring in stories every day that maybe have nothing to do with Black Lives Matter or have nothing to do with, like, the Pride Parade are representative of these demographics rather than just saying, like, oh, like what Vanessa said, it's Black History Month. Let's do something. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, I see our phone ringing and i want to mention if you're just joining us here there's an event coming up on monday called breaking the news well breaking news is the film and the event is monday at the little theater starts at 6 30 uh in theater number five a free event they would love to see you there and you're not only going to see the film but jasmine will be there leading this kind of conversation in new and important directions after the film and you can take part in that so it's monday at the little Theater number five, a free event starting at 6.30. My colleague Jasmine Singer is with us on this program and will be there, of course, on Monday night. Vanessa Cheeks is vice president of social media and marketing for RABJ, the Rochester Association of Black Journalists, among many different titles, current and past yeah. and future. 
Um, and so, um, and in a moment, we're we're going to welcome another guest in who's going to, um, I, I think, really help us understand some of the experiences that we've been talking about here. So what I, I want to do is I want to take our only break of the hour. And when we come back here, um, we'll reset a bit. We'll welcome some of your feedback. If you have it, you can call the program. It's toll-free. It's 844-295-TALK. It's 844-295-8255. 263-WXXI if you're in Rochester. 263-9994. You can email the program, connections at wxxi.org. Coming up in our second hour, the story of prayer in schools. The Supreme Court since the 1960s has ruled multiple times keeping prayer out of public schools or locker rooms or athletic fields, but that is changing. It's changing at the Supreme Court level, it's changing at the legislative level, it's changing in how schools feel emboldened on the issue. And we're going to talk to journalist Linda K. Wertheimer next hour about her reporting on it. This is Connections. I'm Evan Dawson. I'll take a call from David and Colin from California. Hi, David. Go ahead. Hey, well, uh, yeah, afternoon. Uh, I Remember, over 20 years ago, Rupert Murdoch basically tricked America into forcing all of the news departments to become profitable. And uh, in uh, when I started in radio 50 years ago, the news was supposed to be seen as a public service. And uh, it was, in fact, it was a good journalist was not supposed to have any kind of uh, ulterior motives or influence by advertisers. Uh, that the advertisers were supposed to stay away from the news department and that the news was a public service. So uh, Rupert Murdoch really subverted that, and uh, it's basically caused uh, censorship of good stories and censorship of mundane stories. So I'm just wondering if uh, people have looked at the dynamics of how we can get past this problem and get back into uh, you know, journalists having integrity as opposed to being forced to dance to the tune of the advertisers. David, thanks for the phone call. Um, I'm going to kick it over to our guests in studio, and then I'm going to bring in um, Emily Ramshaw, who may want to talk about that. But I'll just say, David, I think that's a part of the story. I don't think that is the only thing driving a lack of diversity. I don't think if you took a profit motive out of every newsroom and somehow you had a, a healthy industry of journalism that overnight it would cure what has been underrepresentation. I, I, but I, I think part of the picture is how it's structured, perhaps. What do, you, what do you think, Jasmine? Well, I think anyone who goes into media needs to have integrity, like journalistic integrity as the core of what they're doing, not trying to push an agenda. And if we are built that way, if we are built to have integrity and to understand how to tell a story, then we're not going to be necessarily like pushing our own agenda. I, I don't know if that's something that resonates with you, Vanessa, or if, uh, what do you think about it? I think that, yes, I I don't want to hesitate on integrity. Yes. <laughs> integrity. <laughs> yeah. I completely agree. But I think um, one of the things that, you know, now that we are in the system of, you know, where capitalism really feeds into how news is done, um, I think Justin Murphy was on this show not too long ago, the reporter for D the DNC, talking about nonprofit newsrooms, and those are kind of um, a way to, to subvert that. But without money, when you talk about diversity, then you can't hire some of these groups and communities, um, kids that want to come into this industry. They can't afford to have an unpaid internship. They can't afford 
to work for, you know, low wage and then also work another job just to kind of make up for it. And you can't really do that in news anyway because it's a 24-hour business. Um, So, like, without money, without funding newsrooms, without creating some type of profit structure or even just a structure that, whether it's for profit or not, that pays your employees and your interns well, then you also lose out on the opportunity for diversity. David, thank you. By the way, to Vanessa's earlier point, Alex writes in to say, during the the post-Daniel Prude unrest in 2020, my grandfather thought I was living in a war zone for all the cable (laughs) and local Sinclair news Mm -hmm. that he was watching. I lived off Culver in Maine at the time. I was only a few blocks away from businesses that were looted, and the only reason I knew it happened is that I saw the plywood over the windows on my next work commute. But his assumption was that every city street was aflame, mm-hmm. and he had to—Alex goes on to basically say that was the impression that his grandfather had, yeah. watching a steady diet of cable news and Sinclair-based local news. Um, to, so to your point— I'm not gonna say- no, that, that's that's right. I mean, Alex yeah. is affirming everything that you said. That there. is one hundred percent correct, Alex. Uh, if you still live over, live over there, I hope you go to the Golden Fox, ten out of ten restaurant. <laughs> the, the multi-talented <laughs> Vanessa Cheeks is one of our guests, and we also have with us Emily Ramshaw, co-founder and CEO of the Nineteenth, who is with us now. Emily, thank you for making time. How are you? I'm wonderful. My pleasure. Thanks for including me. Well, it's it's vital that we do, and I I want if I could. To have Jasmine Singer, do do you want to help guide the? I'm here, of course, but I don't know that we totally need a ton more male voices in this conversation. Really? <laughs> um, what are you looking forward to most with uh, in the conversation and that's going to happen on Monday at the Little? I think that Monday is an opportunity to not only discuss with Vanessa and our other panelists some of the similar topics that you're bringing up today, but I really want to talk about the film Breaking the News because what. What Emily has done, and it is just so beautifully depicted, is taken a a bunch of people from mainstream media, like broke out of their jobs and started an organization that was incredibly disruptive to the male-dominated, straight-dominated, white-dominated mainstream media industrial complex. And so to me, talking about that on Monday and getting the thoughts from the audience, not only about some of the uh, racial inequities that are huge that are going on in the media landscape, but also about some of the issues that were brought up with, as Vanessa mentioned before, the reporter Kate, who is from the 19th and and how they as a as a non-binary person are also going through their sort of own journey of trying to uh, wake up a women-run organization as to the queer person's experience. I think that's an interesting thing to discuss as well. But I'm so excited that you have Emily here right now because there's a lot to discuss with her. Well, the film follows the first three years of the organization that Jasmine just mentioned. And Emily, you want to describe it for listeners? I mean, I have so much admiration for even the concept, which a lot of professional journalists for well over a decade now have talked about this. They see the writing on the wall, the constricting newsrooms, the corporate handling of newspapers. And there's all this talk about, well, what if we did this? What if we had a startup? What if we, and, but it's hard to do. Can you describe what the 19th with an asterisk is and, and what it's all about? Yeah, well, Jasmine said it perfectly. I mean, you know, we, we really started to try to fill a void. I mean, we launched the 19th um, in early 2020 with this goal of building a newsroom that looked unlike almost any other newsroom in America. 
And, um, you know, part of that was to try to, um, you know, fix what we saw as being broken in legacy media. That includes representation. That also includes the business model, a business model right now that is, you know, really terribly broken and where newsrooms are incentivizing all the wrong things. So for us, um, we were thrilled to have the opportunity to try to get the 19th off the ground. It's been um, an incredible ride. I mean, as you'll see when you watch the documentary, you know, it was a challenge first to just raise the money to even uh, take a, a real stab at this. But also we were grappling with a lot of things as a newsroom that the country was also grappling with, you know, conversations, um, tough conversations on race, tough conversations on gender identity. And I think um, the film really is just sort of an incredible time capsule, uh, not just of, of the last four years of our startup, but also of, you know, American history and what it has meant for, for women, particularly women of color and for queer people. Can you do- Elaborate a little bit more. Jasmine brought up the story of Kate, and can you describe what you think their story, the the importance of understanding, um, even when you're trying to be a disruptive organization, you know, making sure that you're you're living your values and you understand what your mission is. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, we fell into a lot of the same traps that some traditional newsrooms fell into. Look, when we started the 19th, the truth was I was thinking about women, politics, and policy. Uh, I'm a straight white woman of privilege. Like, you know, I had brought my own worldview to the fore. And so we were really deeply focused on women in those first early days. Um, And we expanded our coverage to include the LGBTQ community. We hired uh, a reporter who was non-binary. And, you know, very quickly that, that reporter felt like our newsroom wasn't for them and that the terminology and the language that we used um, was misgendering them. And I think, you know, it was, it was, at first it was, it felt scary. I didn't know if I was doing it wrong. I didn't know if I was going to be canceled. I didn't know, you know, how to take care of the folks on our team. And then as an organization, we just sort of locked arms and pivoted and said, you know what, we're going to be really thoughtful about this. We want everyone to feel safe and included and heard in our newsroom. We're going to expand our mission to serve not just women, but women in the LGBTQ community. Um, and to be honest, um, that pivot has only been good for our audience development, good for our bottom line, uh, in addition, of course, to being good for uh, the, the communal nature of our team. This is where, and I would love for Emily and our guests in the studio to weigh in on this. It's just an observation from me. This is where, over the years, when this kind of discussion comes up, and you hear Emily describe a tough moment for an organization that had to own the question of, are you living your values? And if you're not, how do you make change? This is where some in our listening audience will email me and say, see, the left always eats itself. The, the, the progressives can't stop you know, finding their own targets when they're in their own ranks, even the people who are trying to do well, and et cetera, et cetera. But that's not the story you're hearing from Emily. And that's not necessarily the outcome here. It's a question of accountability, and it's not performative. If it's performative and you don't actually have real values that you're following through on, then you will eventually end up probably caught a little bit. Um, but if it is not performative, then you can be really introspective. And what Emily is telling you is that this made the organization better to go through this. Can you elaborate on that, Emily? Yeah, I mean, I think in some ways the biggest barriers to progress are actually, you know, quote unquote, do-gooder, you know, straight white people who uh, feel super defensive when these kinds of conversations come up. And yes, you know, say, but, you know, why are you attacking me? I'm one of the good ones. I'm trying to do it right. But we're all uh, a result of our own upbringing and our own experience. And I think 
what is so important, look, this documentary is hard for me to watch. There are parts of it where I want to like crouch in the fetal position and wish nobody could see it. And, you know, I'm, I'm embarrassed or ashamed by the things that I thought or the things that I said. But at the end of the day, I think this documentary is instructive. I think it is, and, and more, more candidly, like more white people need to be comfortable sitting with this discomfort, need to be comfortable showing uh, how evolution can look and how we can make progress inside organizations and how much better off we are when we, when we make decisions collectively and democratically and listen to the lived experiences of the folks we work with. Vanessa Cheeks, what do you make of that? I, I first I want to say when I watched the documentary, um, I was at the gym and it was a roller coaster of emotions. And I'm like harking back to those to those parts that you're talking about where I was just like gasping, like, oh, my God, what's going to happen next? <laughs> and yeah. we all made it out. OK, so it was great. Um, but <laughs> I think that one of the things that I really appreciated about it was it's so hard when you are experiencing these things when you're experiencing microaggressions you just don't feel seen or you don't feel like you know the place that you work is a place where you feel safe and comfortable and you like there's like mental gymnastics or like this this process you have to go through of like do I bring it up and and Kate was even saying like um, they were talking to a friend of theirs like "Do, do you talk about it do I say something do I not say something and you know, it's 50-50. Like, you could say something and it could go well, which in the case of the documentary, ultimately, like, things were confronted and a process was put in place and, and ultimately worked through as a as an organization. More often than not, they don't go well. You know, more often than not, it's like you're overreacting. Um, somebody feels attacked. You know, you say, well, I feel like, you know, this is, like, a microaggression. And then you have to deal with people saying, like, oh, like, that's not a real thing. Or you're being too sensitive. You can't behave like that in, like, corporate America or in a newsroom. And so um, so it's definitely one of those things, like, it's refreshing to see uh, people, like, confronted with that reality in and in a company just say, like, okay, then we're going to – we'll change. We will change. You don't have to change. We will change. And so that was good. Jasmine? My favorite part of Breaking the News was the very beginning. And Emily, I hope I'm not going to misrepresent this, but this was my take mm-hmm. on it. Uh, Emily was having an initial meeting on Zoom, probably during the pandemic, the the beginning of the pandemic. And the meeting was with a, a white man, uh, presumably a white straight man on Zoom. And they got on the Zoom call and Emily sort of started to talk about the point. I'm laughing because it's so funny. The started to talk about the point of what she's doing and what she wants to do. And he just he like interrupts her. He's, he steamrolled her. There was like it was like mansplaining. He kept going on and on and on. And every single woman watching that mm-hmm. was nodding. I'm telling you, it was a brilliant way to begin it. I think that that is such a meta example of exactly what we're talking about here. It set it up very, very well because I was thoroughly annoyed. <laughs> right. I mean, and what's amazing about is that that about that scene is that that's actually someone who agreed to have it yeah. on camera. So think about all the meetings I've had with people who haven't agreed to be on camera and what those might be like. But yes, it is totally it's totally cringe to use my eight year old daughter's terminology. <laughs> Well, and speaking of your of your kid, that was also such a powerful moment in the film was kind of like you trying to start this organization and fundraise and put together this mission and like, you know, um, headhunt some real incredible talent while trying to like watch your daughter 
jump Mm -hmm. (laughs) and like just be a mom and put together the food and like I my my children are all furry and four-legged there are many of them and they do require a lot of attention but I cannot imagine what that alone must have been like so the kind of motherhood aspect of this Emily to me adds a whole additional layer how was that for you you know, I mean, in some ways, well, first of all, those some of those scenes are super cringeworthy for me because I'm, you know, when she's saying, watch me work, watch me work, you know, she's already modeling my behavior right. or, you know, how distracted I was trying to get this startup off the ground. I mean, I really hope she'll either take this film with her to therapy or she will look back on this film and say, like, you know, my mom was a badass. Look what she was trying to do. But I think, you know, I, it, this film also, it, like, gives me and I think a lot of viewers total PTSD because it's this, like, time capsule of the pandemic of these times where, like, the childcare rug got totally pulled out from underneath us when we were uh, trying to you know achieve our dreams and so it is it but it is this sort of beautiful I think portrait of working motherhood and also for me just really special to get to see her at that size and to see her you know and to look back and say I did this I can't believe I did this with you know a three-year-old underfoot so yeah lots of big feelings and then certainly near the end you know there's a scene when um, when the Dobbs decision lands and Roe v. Wade is overturned and you know I'm acknowledging raising this little girl in a state where she has fewer reproductive rights than her grandmother does and so there's a lot of sort of poignancy for me in watching this. I would love to weigh in on that really briefly, actually, because I, too, thought that was such a powerful moment. And Emily, I, I completely resonated with your pain of having to raise a little person in a world that mm-hmm. is going through this right now. And I don't have kids. So I guess I wanted to say kind of like the um, some of my friends who are the 40 plus non-parents get a little like when people say like as a mother you you know I really Mm -hmm. feel the part of the reason I am actually not a parent is because of how much I care about the next generation actually that's a shameless plug for tomorrow's episode of environmental connections Mm -hmm. which is about having kids (laughs) but I I wanted to just sort of throw out there that like that is such it's such a powerful moment of the film that everyone, regardless of whether they have a toddler, is going to be feeling as long, I mean, assuming they're an empathic person who who understands the dire situation we're in right now. Yeah, I do. I really do think, I mean, everyone sort of has a where was I when this happened moment. Um, And, you know, one of the really interesting things about this film being shot during the pandemic uh, a couple of things. First of all, we never intended for the film to be this film. You know, they the documentary filmmakers had pitched to us, you know, we're going to spend nine months on the 2020 campaign trail with your reporters. And then the pandemic happened and Joe Biden was in a bunker and like there was no campaign trail to speak of. And suddenly, you know, these filmmakers, all they had was Zoom footage. And so the story that was supposed to be the story of the 2020 election became weirdly a story about us. And I think one fascinating thing is that, you know, we were super COVID conscious and being really safe and careful. And so for a lot of this, um, my husband, who's a filmmaker, was basically enlisted by the production team to turn a camera on me. And there are scenes, interestingly, where I am like so much more vulnerable probably than I ever would have been with a filmmaker in the house because it was just my husband turning on the camera and like documenting our daily life. That 
seen after Dobbs, the Dobbs decision literally is a camera, you know, that is turned on in our living room yeah. while I'm navigating this with my kiddo. Right. So yeah. it's like yeah. your lived experience, which I certainly don't yeah. mean to diminish at all because. Oh, God, not that, at all. Yeah. I, I, that it's, it's tough. It's a tough moment to be in journalism. Honestly, you're really heroic to me. I'm so grateful that you're doing this work. God, that's very nice, but it's not the people who are heroic are the reporters who are out in the field doing this work and bringing their lived experiences to the work. The you know the trans reporters who are covering the tra- the assault on trans rights in the American South, or our reproductive health reporters who are you know in uh, in clinics across the country. Like they are they are the ones who are heroic. Just as a brief aside, the story of the man who kept interrupting. Actually, Evan, can I? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Feel free, Jess. I'm just kidding. Uh, the the well actually guy mm-hmm. um, uh, reminds me of the fact that because I'm a troubled and sick individual, I still have a Twitter account. And uh, one of the viral videos of the last 24 hours is an an Irish a woman. She's a, a, a becoming a professional golfer, and she's mm-hmm. on the range taking video of her swing. And she's working on her swing. And she's striping the ball, but she's working on her swing. And you hear a guy in the next stall over on the range go, um, can I give you some advice? Oh, my. <laughs> and, and she's so nice about it. She's so nice about it. But he, and he, kept, he keeps saying, I've been playing golf for 20 years, and you have to follow through more. And, you're not really... and she very nicely says, I'm actually working on a swing change. And I'm, the reason I'm swinging a little more slowly and deliberately is I'm trying to lock in some of these changes. But I got it. But thank you. And he will not let it go. He's going like, well, you got to try this, and I want you to, I want hit another one. Hit, I, I want you and so like uh, perform for me, so yeah, that way I can critique yeah, you a little yeah. more. And like, and she is just striping it, and he is probably a thirty handicap who just wants to tell a woman how to swing a golf club. Mm-hmm. And of course, it goes viral because she's so. Like you can see inside, she's like, ah. but she's, she's like, I could hit him with it. I know, <laughs> but she's like, yeah. I wanted her to actually turn and fire the fire the pill right. And, his direction but anyway just a little bit of solidarity there because yeah. that's the video that comes to mind for me and the go, yes. go ahead Vanessa oh no that's <laughs> I that was one of the the first things that stood out was like oh oh this is how it's gonna go because he was very adamant and also just like I, oblivious which I think a lot of like men are especially when you're in those types of situations whether you're pitching a story or you have a new idea or whatever it's like Yes. Okay. You're so important. Thank you so much. Like, <laughs> let's move on. I know. Yeah. Just to not even get any money out of that call. To sit through that and not get yes. any money out of the call. <laughs> I know. I mean, but there are, there, honestly, there are, and there are, if I had a dollar for every time something like this has happened, I mean, I, you know, met with a very wealthy progressive donor mm-hmm. in Austin one day in the, in the hopes that this would turn into some kind of gift to the 19th. And he literally said to me, uh, if you uncrossed your arms and smiled more, I'd be more likely to make a gift to you. Oh. And I like got in the car afterward and called my husband and I just like, burst into tears and was like, I can't do this. I mean, the, the great news is, you know, there there are so many people who have supported us and we've raised mm-hmm. over $50 million to date. And like now I don't have to take those calls with the people who, you know, who are so disparaging. But it is it's a slog. And I think even well-meaning men, um, this this can happen. So it's you, rough. You mentioned in the documentary the one line where you were talking about your daughter and how you wouldn't be there without, um, you know, being responsible for another woman. Like if you weren't responsible for another woman, you might not have have gotten to where you were just because that was a, a push and a motivation that really resonated with me. I don't have children, but 
it is one of those things where like, yes, you're out of the woods, you know, you do kind of move past having to deal with people like that. But there are so many other women who are kind of like taking those first meetings or getting those first critiques. And it's like you have to talk about these things so that way they know like they'll get past it. There's there's something beyond it. And, um, you know, there's other there's other opportunities when somebody says no. Yeah. I mean, I don't think you have to have children or have a daughter to want to care for the next generation Mm -hmm. of women, (laughs) you know. So anyway, I think that's well said. Can I ask you before we go here, Emily, for just your description for listeners who are curious and invested in the future of journalism? We've talked a lot about different models that work um, and why so many newsrooms have collapsed or are constricting. Um, how you feel things are going and, and what you think successful models look like in the future? Well, I mean, the industry is kind of a shambles right now, yep. if I'm being per- perfectly honest. Oh, yeah, yeah. Look, I mean, I do think you're going to see more and more nonprofit newsrooms uh, because they prioritize the right things. You know, a, a declining ad market affects nonprofit newsrooms a lot less. You know, a waning subscriber base, you know, we're dependent on something completely different, which is obviously philanthropy and some corporate underwriting, but also sort of small dollar memberships, you know, people who give $19 a year or $19 a month. And so I'm I'm bullish on nonprofits um, because of the things we stand for. But I do think we're entering an era where they're going to be, you know, a handful of uh, big national for profit newspapers, a whole bunch of, of regional and topical nonprofit newsrooms. Um, and then, you know, an environment where there are a handful of regional for-profit newspapers owned by billionaires um, who, you know, again, whether they keep these guys, uh, they didn't get super rich by losing money. So, you know, they're they're really trying to make those those regional papers make money, too, or or flash costs and jobs. So mm. it's it's rough sledding out there. Um, but I do believe there are a lot of really innovative models that are getting traction. Emily, I wish I had seen this email earlier from Tiana Magnon, who has been a guest on this program, has been a a journalist, and um, has been doing great work in this community for a long time. And she's the CEO of Magnon Media Management. She writes, and I'll I'll kick this over to you, and we're down to just under our last minute, Emily. She says, can you discuss how this isn't new? So often the conversation is BLM era or since the 2000s, but the cycle of hiring for diversity and then laying off because of costs is rinse and repeat that goes back decades. Wanda Smalls-Lloyd Uh, The NABJ Hall of Fame member discussed a report of the Washington Post from the 1970s that discussed that. Mm -hmm. At what point do we stop treating diversity as a secondary goal that we just can't seem to seriously achieve and a necessary structure or ideal in newsrooms? That's from Tiana. Just about 30 to 40 seconds. uh, Go ahead, Emily. Yeah, I mean, it it can't be a secondary issue. And also, I actually think the way to think about it is as an economic issue, because maybe that'll get the suits off the sidelines. You know, our newsroom, by doing things like offering incredible benefits, incredible salaries, diversity is a non-issue for us in the hiring process. You know, 60 to 70 percent of our team are women of color. 40 percent of our team is queer. 20 percent of our team lives with a disability. Um, We didn't have to go hunting for those folks. We had to offer them a workplace where they were, uh, you know, cared for and, and encouraged to bring their full lived experience to the work. Emily, where do people new to the 19th find you? They find us at 19thnews.org. Our handle on social media is at 19thnews. 
Emily Ramshaw is the co-founder and CEO, and you'll see the story on Monday in the film. Thank you for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me. And I want to thank Jasmine Singer, who my colleague is going to be here tomorrow for Environmental Connections, which I'm sure everyone will be with you on. Thanks, Evan. Please tune in. I appreciate you, Evan. Every last Friday of the month, Environmental Connections. And Jasmine will be hosting this event on Monday at the Little Theater starting at 6.30, breaking the news. See you there. See, See you, you tomorrow. Yes. Vanessa Cheeks. Vice President of Social Media and Marketing for RABGA, the Rochester Association of Black Journalists. Thank yes, you for being thank here. Yes, thank you. Always good. More connections coming up in just a moment.